All right, if you want to come in, grab a seat, open up to Matthew chapter 22. So in, this, in the midst of this Lent season, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, if you have a prayer journal, uh, you can kind of follow along with the sermons and the readings, and uh, we're in Matthew chapter 22 now um, as, we, as we head towards Easter and Resurrection. But I wanted to read these verses uh, to start with. It's Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. Um, please read with me. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's a pretty powerful words from Jesus. Maybe one of the most important things that he ever says. Uh, he says this in a, a place in Jerusalem. His life is coming to an end. Uh, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, he has entered into the last week of his life uh, here on earth, and he's in uh, a conversation with Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, and they ask him a question. And his response is maybe so important that, that as we read it and we, we hear these words, we, what we might find is the meaning of life. Why are we here? What, it, what does it mean to be, in, to be human, to be in relationship with God? Jesus makes this statement. And it's profound. As we think about this statement that Jesus makes, the greatest commandment, uh, this, this purpose statement, this mission statement, this statement for what it means for us to be human, to be in relationship with God, um, it comes out of the context of this conversation. And as we look at kind of the context, I just want to make a few observations today about what's happening here and then kind of move to what I think Matthew is trying to get us, to get through to us as the readers. Um, so this first observation in this passage that I just read is that it starts off with this phrase that, that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. We hear that, we hear about the Sadducees, and we think, who are the Sadducees, and why have they been silenced? Uh, the Sadducees is, if, if you are, are somewhat familiar with, with the Bible and the story of Jesus, you realize that the Sadducees, they always seem to be upset about something. I remember my dad's a pastor, and he would always make the old pastor-dad joke that they're sad, you see. And this is super cheesy. Don't know if I'm quite there yet. But they're always, they're always seem to be upset. And the reason that they had been silenced is that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and uh, in, in the context of this conversation is, in, is the end of what's been kind of known as uh, the temple disputes. And the Sadducees have come to him with three different questions. And he's been responding to them. And if you want to know kind of who the Sadducees are, they're this kind of religious group, kind of a, a religious sect. Um, they're, they're very religious, but they're also political. And they're kind of in control. They're in control of the temple. Um, this is a, a place when, when Jesus was alive, uh, uh, Jerusalem is, is under the control of Rome. Uh, before that, it was under the control of Greece. Before that, it was under the control of the Persians. And what happens is when these people have been conquered by these outside superpowers, uh, they're identity is threatened. 
And when the Persians had conquered this land and, and brought God's people into exile and allowed them to come back, they still had the freedom to, to worship God. But then this guy named Alexander the Great shows up on the scene. The Greeks come, and they conquer this area. They drive out the Persians. And God's people don't have the same freedom. It's not just that they're just conquered by this outside force again. But now the Greeks, this idea of Hellenization, they're, they're promoting uh, Greek culture. And in the midst of them promoting Greek culture, they're, they're kind of wiping out all the other cultures along the way. So whatever your culture is, your religion, your language, your history, your education, all of these things are now threatened. And for the people of God, they realized we're being exterminated culturally. And you had all these kind of groups that rose up. They're kind of these resistance groups. One group was called the Essenes, and, and they kind of like retreat. They almost become these hermit monks, and they, they leave the culture and try to preserve their way of life and their religion and their, uh, their culture. Another group uh, tried to fight against uh, the Greeks, where the, the zealots, they, they come onto the scene, and they're trying to, uh, to, to drive them out. Um, a third group is called the Herodians, and what happens is the Romans come in and drive the Greeks out, and there's this group that's loyal to Rome that assumes political power. And then there's this group called the Sadducees that comes onto the scene, and it's the same thing. It's this, this resistance to allowing us to preserve our culture. And in their mindset, what they were doing was this sacred calling by God to preserve their way of life, their religion, their sacred book. This other group called the Pharisees comes as well. And Jesus is interacting with these people. And, and we don't know, like, when these simple disputes happen, when Jesus finally silences the Sadducees, what we think is that the Sadducees have kind of this bad reputation. They're sad, you see. Yet at the same time, they're very pious people. They're very, their hope and their desire is that they're trying to honor God with their life. But what happens so often with religious language is it's become this thing that actually, uh, it, it, it Instead of this being about relationship with God, it becomes ritual. And Jesus comes onto the scene to talk about relationship with God. In the midst of these disputes, the Sadducees finally are silenced. But then it says, the Pharisees, this other group, huddled together. The second observation is this. So the Sadducees were silenced in this conversation. The Pharisees huddled together. And that's interesting because Jesus probably would have identified with this group, the Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees kind of have this bad reputation. We always think that they're kind of antagonistic. They're always going after Jesus. They're always trying to trip him up. Uh, and when he silences the Sadducees, he actually kind of sides with the Pharisees on this issue that they're talking about. But it says that they, they huddle together to come after Jesus. When this story opens, Jesus has enemies. He has people that are after him. This is the last week of his life. And if you've kind of been tracking through Matthew, what you find is that Jesus has created this following. He's gained popularity. He's done these miraculous works. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the powers that be are upset about it. And this group huddles together to plot against Jesus. Our oldest daughter, Sophia, is about to enter into the dark stage of life called middle school. <laughs> and it's this reminder of how mean and messy middle school is for me and my wife as we see her kind of entering into this stage where she's 11, about to turn 12, and the drama that comes with it and the insecurity that comes with it. And one of the things that we're starting to notice at her school is 
at this point, like, it's almost like the kids start to lose, just like they're everyone plays together. This is where like Lord of the Flies starts to kick in, right? And like these little like alliances build at school and these different cliques start to form and they start to talk about each other. And, and then it's, it's heartbreaking when your child is on the outside of one of those groups. It's this reminder that, oh yeah, people are mean. But that doesn't always stop in middle school, right? There's, there's times where we have felt, and maybe you have felt that there's someone out to get you for whatever reason, whether it's something at, at work, whether it's neighborhood, whether it's your family, and it's like they, they start to gang up people on you and they plot against you. Jesus, this is maybe a little bit more than middle school drama here. He's got a group of people plotting against him, whether it's out of jealousy, whether it's out of them trying to preserve their way of life, but they plot against him, and they approach him. The third observation is they send someone that approaches them, and it's a lawyer, an expert in the law. The expert in the law comes, and he tested him. Sounds like there's some middle school drama happening in the back right now. <clears throat> Not my kid, I promise. I might just go back and check. Okay. Um, the expert in the law comes, and it says that he tests Jesus. And I, I think what's interesting is this word test, that he, that he comes to test Jesus because it means that it's not just like a genuine question. It's not like this lawyer is seeking truth when he approaches Jesus with this question about the law. It says that he tests him. In fact, when Matthew writes this word test, he uses this word test at another place earlier in the story in Matthew chapter 4. And do you know who comes to test Jesus? The devil. The devil. And here, the same term that was used for the devil to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4 is being used here with this expert in the law. It's kind of like, I don't know if Matthew's saying like insert lawyer joke here or what, <laughs> but he comes with this test. And, and so the thought is that because of the, the wording of this, it's not that this lawyer just comes with this innocent question where he's like, I'm really seeking truth. I, I just want to know, like, what do you think is the best? He's coming with an agenda. He's coming with an agenda here. He comes to Jesus with a trap. The Pharisees have plotted against Jesus. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to find out, where do you stand? Because once we know where you stand, we'll know how to attack you. And they ask Jesus this question. And the question is this fourth observation. What is the greatest commandment? This question. What is the greatest commandment? And it's actually a question that gets asked quite a bit in this time. Because for these Religious groups like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're trying to figure out, like, what is the point of all this? And what is the most important? What are the essentials? How do we distill this religion that we're a part of to, to the essentials and chase after those things? And this idea of commandment, there's actually, we know of, like, the Ten Commandments, but there's, like, 613 commandments. And there's all sorts of discussion about what are the ones that are important and what are the ones that are not quite as important. And they had this language, what were heavier commandments, what were lighter commandments. And so this is just a common discussion in that time. But what happens, and the same thing happens today in religious circles, is that we, we tend to, like, lean one way or the other, and then we find our tribe and we gang up on each other and we try to be convinced that we're the right ones and, and they're the wrong ones. And this discussion, this thing's happening right here with Jesus. They're asking him this loaded question, where do you stand on the commandments? And Jesus responds with two, two words. One, he says, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love 
God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is my fifth observation. Jesus answers with, with these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That is the greatest commandment. He's actually commentating on my Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God with everything. But then he says very quickly before they can respond to that answer, and the second is like it. They didn't ask for what's the second. But Jesus says the second one is like it, and it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18. What is the greatest commandment? Love God with everything that you have, but the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is connecting something here with loving God and with loving neighbor and with loving neighbor and loving God. He says there's two, and they're both important. And then he takes it a step further. He doesn't just say, this is the most important commandment. This is what this is all about. But he, he, he says, not only is this what these commandments are, the, the greatest things that we should follow, but everything else, all of the Torah, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of it hangs on these commandments to love God and to love others. It's not just that it's the greatest and that you should do it, but it's everything else is pointing us towards this. The sacred book that we have, the sacred text that we have, everything is filtered through this lens, sending us here to love God and to love others. It's almost like this hourglass that the sand passes through. It's not just the greatest thing to do, but it is the purpose of all of this. We love God. We love others. We're a people defined by love, by love. When you think about the culture of the kingdom, it is this love that God has given to us that is sacrificial and unconditional, that we're called to respond by loving God and loving others. A pastor from New York wrote this about this passage. I thought it was interesting. Why love is important? He said, the disposition of love is the atmosphere in which all other qualities ripen, which only they and in which only they are perfect. Let me read that again. The disposition of love is the atmosphere in which all other qualities ripen. The atmosphere of love. This is what, what enriches the world. It's what enriches our relationships. Eugene Peterson says this, We are most ourselves when we love. We are most the people of God. When we love, we are a people of love. Love God, love others. The greatest commandment, everything else hangs on this. I'm, uh, I'm not very handy around the house. I don't fix things. Um, and my wife is okay with that. Uh, she's not necessarily the best cook in the world. And so we have this like agreement, like, okay, you don't always have to cook, and I don't always have to feed, and it's a good trade-off. We're just not very domestic people. I don't know. Like we're, and uh, last week, her dad came to town from Michigan, Raj, and uh, some of you, you met him. He's really handy, and he fixes everything, and she loves it when he comes to town because he fixed things on the house, and I disappear. <laughs> and uh, 
we have this side gate around our house, and there's always issues with the side gate. Does anyone have side gate issues? You know what I'm talking about. Yes. Yes, you feel me? Side gates are like the bane of my existence. I just, our side gate breaks all the time. And it always breaks on the hinges. And it drives me nuts. And I've tried to fix it. I can't fix it. And, and so what happens is, like, because my gate doesn't really work, it doesn't swing open, it, it's kind of uneven, it just kind of rests. I kind of, like, open it and just, like, lean it against the gate, right, door. So it looks like, you know, no one should go back there. But my, my trash can's back there, so every week, you know, when trash day, I have to go and I have to lift the gate, and it's heavy, and put it against the wall, and pull the trash can, the recycling bag out, and then I lift it, and I always get splinters. It's breaking, it's heavy, it's clunky, it doesn't look good. And Raj was coming to town, and I was like, don't let him go onto the side of the house, because he's going to see this ridiculous thing I deal with each week, and he's going to be like, what is wrong with my son-in-law? Why can't he get this fixed? <laughs> like, I don't have the capacity to do it right now. So, I, and I, I started to realize this. He was going to come and fix this gate, and I, I knew it was going to be like this thing where I just feel so inadequate, like trying to take care of your daughter. I can't even fix this stinking gate. <laughs> I was ashamed of it. And it was this weird, this 36-year-old me having shame about this thing on the side of my house that I didn't want my father-in-law to see. And as I was kind of thinking about that, and, I, and as I was reading through this passage, all of the prophets, the Torah, the law, hangs on this idea of loving God and loving... Another thing, all of it depends on it. When Jesus is talking about loving God and loving others, everything hinges on this commandment. And I was thinking about these hinges of, of, of loving God and loving others, and when those break, this faith that we belong to, this Christianity, this following Jesus, the church, when those hinges break, it's like my side gate. It doesn't always open right. It's annoying. It's clunky. It looks ugly. I get splinters from it, and I'm ashamed that someone close to me is coming and they're going to see it. I think the same thing happens when we fail to love God and when we fail to love others as Jesus has commanded. It's like having broken hinges on the church. It's something that it just doesn't look right, it just doesn't feel right, and it's not working. And when Jesus says all of this that we are a part of, the sacred text, these commandments, what, what we are called to do is to love God with everything that we have and to love others, our neighbors, as we would love ourselves. Everything hinges on these two things. And when that's off, it just doesn't look right. It's just not right. These hinges, as I would define them, to expand on them a little bit, love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind is the first hinge. It's almost like God's trying to get through to somebody. I don't know. <laughs> what a day. Woo. All right. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. When I was thinking about what does it mean to love God, like, like this is something that feels a little bit intangible. Loving God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. Here's what I think when I, when I kind of think of what does it mean to love God with my heart? It means this, that I give God my heart. 
There's something where I say, Lord, this is the heart, everything I, I desire and work for and, and pursue and love that comes from my heart, Lord, I give to you. And what that requires is this idea of surrender. God, I want you to have my heart. I surrender this heart to you. We use language of, of God, God, we invite him into our heart. He, he comes into our heart, but he, we give our heart to him and say, Lord, I, I want to I love you with my heart. But that means that it is yours to do with, with what you want. There's this idea of surrender that takes place. As we start to love God, we start with this, this posture of surrender. Lord, the things of my heart, I want them to be aligned with your heart. Maybe that's never happened for you. Maybe you've just never come to this moment of surrender. Where you say, Lord, I, I want to just give you my heart. It's metaphor for this transformation that takes place inside of you. Where all of a sudden God becomes the Lord of your life. We love God by surrendering our heart to him. If that's something that has never happened in your life, I want to encourage you and invite you to do that today. This is how we love God. We surrender our hearts to him. Then our soul. Our heart, we love him through surrender. I think our soul, we love God with our soul through worship. Worship is corporate worship where we sing praises to him here on Sunday. We sing in our car to keep us from road range, right? We, we sing in different places. But worship is more than just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. That we worship God with our lives. With everything that we do. We worship God. It, this is our soul is connected. There's this, we are spiritual beings connected with the spirit of God. When we come together and we worship, we, we love God with our soul. We're spiritual people. Connected with him relationally. And then I was thinking, like, what does it mean to love God with my mind? Is that like my thoughts, like keeping my thoughts on him and... Um, Recently, I finished seminary, and this is the thing that the professors would always say is, you know, this is how we love God with our minds. We're smart, and we talk about theological things. And I'm like, yeah, but what does it mean to love God with your mind? What I think is that it's formation. There's these spiritual disciplines that we do that we train our mind to think about the things of God. Our thoughts go to God and what God is up to in this world around us. So we do these different disciplines whether it's prayer, whether it's spending time in God's word. Um, coming on a Sunday, Sundays are formational for our minds as we interact with people in community, we worship, we hear a word from God. Spending time in the word throughout the week, God's word is, is something that we love God with our mind. He occupies our mind. If we think about how we love our family, we spend time with family members. We're generous towards people. It's the same way that we're generous towards God. There's these different disciplines that we place in our life that we love God with our mind. Our whole being, our heart, our soul, our mind, we surrender, we worship, we put these things into action where we honor God with our lifestyles. Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. One commentator said this on this passage, that love of God and love of neighbor are quite different. Love of God is manifested by acts of obedience and worship that grow out of reverence for God. Love of neighbor is manifested by acts of kindness that grow out of concern for the neighbor's need. And this is the second hinge, is that to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Another, question, uh, another gospel account of this is there's this question, that, well, who is my neighbor? 
you break, Jesus breaks into the story of the Good Samaritan. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Is it the people on my street? Is it the people at work? What is neighbor? Kind of, Jesus kind of leaves it, but there, there seems to be some sort of proximity. The people that you are living close to, to love people, you know your neighbors. They have names. It's something particular here. I think I, 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 it's easy for me to say I love humanity. It's hard for me to say there are certain humans that I love. Here's one thing that I found. People that are hard to love are hard to love. Is that correct? People who are hard to love are hard to love. And Jesus says we should love others. We should love our neighbors. We should love those who annoy us. We should love those who are different than ourselves. And sometimes we love to fall in love with the idea of loving others, but then when we're faced with the task of loving people that are hard to love, it's a lot more challenging. Loving our neighbors. Loving those who are different than us, loving our enemies. Another commentator said this, in an age when the word love is greatly abused, it is important to remember that the primary component of biblical love is not affection but commitment. We may love people even if they're different and we don't like them. And the kind of love that is talked about here in the Old Testament that Jesus quotes, the kind of love that Jesus has for us isn't just this feel-good, sentimental, mushy love that's based on emotions. It's defined as sacrificial love and commitment towards the other. There's a maturity to this. To love because we're committed to our neighbors We're aware that they are in our community, and we care. goes on to say, Warm feelings of gratitude may fill our consciousness as we consider all that God has done for us. But it is not warm feelings that Deuteronomy 6.5 demands of us, but rather a stubborn, unwavering commitment. Similarly, to love our neighbor, including our enemies, does not mean that we must feel affection to them. But to love the neighbor is to imitate God by taking their needs seriously. This other hinge, loving others. Not easy to do. Doesn't feel good. But it's this commitment where we imitate God. And we hang with people. We stay committed to him. I want to close with this. So how how do we love? Especially those who are hard to love in our lives. I would say that to love we must see people as Jesus sees them. I think this is essential. To see people as Jesus sees people. We see people as we see people, right? But to see people through this lens as Jesus would look at others. When Jesus sees people, he sees humans created in the image of God. Therefore, they have value. Jesus looks out at people and he says, you're worth dying for. What if we saw others as people created in the image of God, worth dying for, worth being redeemed, rescued. Jesus sees the potential in others. Oftentimes, especially with our critical eyes, we see everyone else's faults. Jesus looks at people and he sees potential. He sees that they've been created in the image of God, that they're redeemable. As we love others, we see them as Jesus sees them. The second thing is we, we hear people. To love others, we must hear people as Jesus hears people. 
to listen to others. And I think this is something I have a hard time doing because listening takes patience. Our son Ezra uh, at the dinner table is a storyteller. But he starts telling these stories. We have no idea where they're going. <laughs> and we've had to like, learn this discipline of like, letting him get it out because it's good for him and his confidence to tell this story. But like, we just want to move forward with the conversation. <laughs> Listening requires patience. And this is what Jesus does. When he listens to others, he listens patiently. And he hears them. And he hears them. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Lebanon. And I was there right when the Syrian war was breaking out, the Syrian civil war. They had these refugees that were flooding into Lebanon. And I was working with this group called Heart for Lebanon. Heart for Lebanon was working with these refugees. And I, I, I heard a statement there that I'll never forget. This Heart for Lebanon group, as they were working with, with these people who had kind of lost everything from this war-torn Syria and came over, they said, the church needs to listen to the stories that no one else wants to listen to. We need to be good listeners. And I thought about that. Church, I want to be a church that listens well. We listen as Jesus listens. We hear people as Jesus hears people. And then finally, we act toward people as Jesus acts towards them. This embodiment of love, love came down, took on flesh and blood, and walked among us. Jesus embodies the love of God and shows us what this looks like with flesh and blood. We should act in this world as Jesus has acted towards others. We embody love with everything that we do. We see people as Jesus sees them, we hear people as Jesus hears them, and we act towards people as Jesus acted the greatest love that he has done for us. One of the activities I do to understand how I can live this out, and I've done this before with us, is there's this little uh, exercise I do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul defines what love is all about. This is the famous passage that we hear at weddings, but the idea that of all the things that we do, if we do them without love, we're simply a clinging gong. We just make a lot of noise, but love is everything. And he goes on to talk about what love is. Here's something that I've found myself doing and need to continually coming back to. But when it comes to this famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, wherever I see the word love, to write my name in. If we want to be an embodiment of love in this world, to see if this is true in my own life. So here's an activity that I do. Whereas love is patient, I replace it with my name and say, can I still read this? How am I doing? Jared is patient. Jared is kind. Jared does not envy. Jared does not boast. Jared is not proud. Jared is not, uh, does not dishonor others. Jared is not self-seeking. Jared is not easily angered. Jared keeps no record of wrongs. Jared does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jared always protects, always trusts, always hopes, perseveres. It's a great practice to do, saying, am I embodying love? Am I acting towards others as Jesus has acted towards others? Can I read this? We see people as Jesus sees them. We hear them as Jesus hears them. And we act towards others as Jesus has acted. These hinges are essential to our faith. I want to close with this uh, last word from N.T. Wright in his commentary on this passage. And we'll move to a time of communion. But when it comes to this idea of loving God and loving others, N.T. Wright says this. One more, 
once more Jesus says here about loving God and loving one another. It only makes sense when we, uh, when we set it within Matthew's larger gospel picture of Jesus dying for the sins of the world and rising again with the message of new life. That's when these commandments begin to come into their own, when they're seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life in which bit by bit, hatred and pride can be left behind and love can become a reality. What Jesus calls us to, this is an invitation. The promise of a new kind of life, a life that is eternal, a life that is not defined by our faults and sin and things that we get wrong, but a life that has been paid for by the blood of Christ on the cross. It's an invitation. And today as we come to the communion table, a couple things to reflect on. When it comes to all of this hinges on these two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. How, do, how, do, how are your hinges? You're loving God, loving others. Is there something that needs to be repaired? Maybe your side gate, something that you've been ashamed of. Maybe you feel like these hinges are broken. What today needs to be repaired so that you can love God and love others? Maybe today it's something where you need to just surrender your heart to God. You've never started at this place of surrender, and today you just need to come to God and say, Lord, I, I give you my heart. Allow me to love you and love others. Maybe the Lord just needs to come and fix these hinges so that that love may flow from you to others. I don't know what it is, but today we come before God and say, Lord, meet us here. We're going to close with the time of communion. Tim's going to come back up. This communion represents God's love for us. The communion, we take it, it's symbolic of the, the death of Jesus on the cross. We take a piece of bread and we break it open. It represents God's body that was broken on the cross for us. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood that was shed by Jesus on the cross that washes away our sin. We remember it and we proclaim it. We respond to this invitation to this type of life where we break ourselves open, we pour ourselves out so that others may have life. These hinges of loving God and loving others are essential. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day and for this passage. We're reminded of your love for us. A love that was given to us even when we didn't deserve it. That you poured yourself out. Lord, that you invite us to this new life that is a life defined by love, that we are a people of love. That we love you with our heart, soul, and mind. That we love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we want to be a church that sees others as you see them that hears others as you hear them, and that acts as your body here on earth. So we pray today, Lord, that you would meet us in this place, that you would fix the hinges that are broken, the ways that we miss the mark, that you would call us to a life, a life eternal. 
Lord, we give you this time. We ask that you would meet us here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.